Great to be with you. I'm Brother Bobby. Uh, by the way, I first got to know Jonathan. Uh, my daughter was a student at Harding University, and uh, <clears throat> she, she had been a, we planted a church, so she knew what it was like to really, uh, you know, seek Jesus and make disciples. And uh, one day she said to me, Dad, there's this guy named Jonathan Stormont, and he, you would really like him. He's just really, really good and awesome. And uh, then I followed Jonathan as he went to uh, Richland Hills and then Highland, and uh, uh, then when he came here. And he called me a couple years ago, and he asked me to help coach him on what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, I'm really glad to be with you, and I, I would like to set the stage this morning for what ultimately matters. As you look out at our world today, uh, I don't know how you feel about the world, but from a Christian point of view, at least uh, in North America, there's reasons to be concerned about what's happening, but I just want to declare to you that at the end, when Jesus returns, those who are disciples of Jesus, we're, it, it's all, we win. Everything's successful. We, we win because we're in Christ. And I want you to envision that day when Jesus comes back. Uh, the book of Thess First Thessalonians describes that you hear the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise. And I just want you to envision that day and stand before Jesus. And as you stand before Jesus, you're a faithful disciple. And he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And then you look at those who are there with you. Hopefully, and we're going to talk about uh, why, why this message is so important. Hopefully, you're going to be there with your children and your uh, grandchildren, some of you, your great-grandchildren and and your friends, your co-workers, and your neighbors. And the only thing that's going to matter is, were you a disciple of Jesus, and were they disciples of Jesus? Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning, and I just pray that the words Jesus gave at the end of his life in the Great Commission, that they would be, uh, they would be a priority to us, that we would first seek to be disciples but that we would be disciples who make disciples. And we pray for uh, Pleasant Valley Church, that Pleasant Valley would be a church that had a culture where everyone just thought of themselves, hey, this is a church of disciples who make disciples. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So just a little bit of, uh, about me so you can get to know me. Uh, I grew up in uh, Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and if you want to envision where that is, just think Montana, the furthest po point in Montana you can think of, and go north. And there's a big city there called Calgary, and that's where I grew up. I was a student at the University of Calgary, and I was in a, a journey trying to find out about the Bible and about Jesus. Uh, I was going to get different churches. Uh, I did the thing I would not recommend anybody do, and that is I signed up for a religious studies class, which was not that helpful. And um, there was a day, it was a very cold day in February, and cold in Calgary meant 30 below. Okay, so there I was, and uh, I needed to get some help with my uh, French, uh, because I always have struggled with languages, and I was struggling that day. I was a political science major at the University of Calgary, and the Prime Minister of Canada was there. And my buddies had saved me a front row seat, and I was like, yes. I get to go see him, but first I, had to, I, I needed some help with my French. So I was sitting, waiting uh, for my appointment, and uh, my French professor, uh, Dr. Mac Jacobs, the, the door was open a little bit, and uh, I could overhear a little bit, and they talked about like the Bible, and Jesus, and church. 
So I went in, the person left, and I went in and got my help with French, uh, sat down, got my help with French, and uh, that was it. And I stood up to leave, and I thought, what, why not just ask them? So I did. So I said, uh, Professor Jacobs, I heard you talking about the Bible and, and about Jesus. And he, and he smiled at me, and he said, yeah, yeah, I was. He invited me to sit down. And uh, rather than going as I planned to hear the Prime Minister of Canada, I never got to hear the Prime Minister of Canada because I sat in that room for the next two hours and I could sense the warmth of the Holy Spirit of God and my life was radically changed and uh, it was a hairpin turn in my life. What happened is that uh, Professor Jacobs went from being Professor Jacobs, my French professor, to being Mac Jacobs, the man that discipled me. I had a lot of questions about the Bible, had a lot of questions about the Bible and is it accurate and the Bible and evolution and was it just a myth and, and he walked me through all of that, but he didn't just walk me through all that, he invested in my life, he, he invited me to join with him uh, like for social events, playing cards, going to movies. He invited me to come to his church. I went to his church. Did seem a little bit odd at first, but after a while it didn't seem so odd. And he moved from being uh, Dr. Jacobs to being Mac Jacobs, Mac, my friend, who baptized me. And three months after he baptized me, because I decided I wanted to study the Bible, and I asked him where he would recommend, I traveled below Montana. The furthest south I'd ever been was Montana. And uh, in August, I drove south of Montana on my way to Harding University, where I became a, a Bible major at Harding University, and I didn't know anything about anything. But God used it in my life and changed me for the good. By the way, I like it when you say amen. You and J.C. Thomas, you guys are great to preach to. I'm just saying. Um, so I want to ask you to look with me uh, at a passage that's on the screen now, and it's Matthew 28, and most of you have heard it before, but I, I want to talk about Mac Jacobs was not a preacher. He was not a pastor, wasn't an elder in the church or anything. He was just a regular disciple of Jesus who believed in the kingdom of God, and he thought it was the greatest thing for anybody and everybody to ever experience. And because he believed that, he invested in me and discipled me. And by doing that, he did exactly what Jesus said before he left the earth. Can we all read it together? On the count of three, one, two, three. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So let's just look at this really quick. Notice that there's an imperative in the text, and it's to go and make disciples. It's like as if Jesus is saying, of course you're going to go and make disciples. Here's what he means by that. When you have been saved… When you really realize that you are eternally lost, you're going to face God for the final judgment, and because of the sin in your life, you're going to spend eternity apart from God in punishment, and then you realize Jesus Christ came and rescued you, that awareness, is we, we call it the greatest gift you could ever have. If you have the greatest gift you could ever have, how could you not want to share that with everybody? 
And furthermore, once you've shared it with those who come to faith in Christ, how can you not want those who've come to Christ to grow up and become more and more and more like Christ because it's the best that a human being could ever be. The best me and the best you is the Christ-like version of me and the Christ-like version of you. And, and those two things, coming to salvation in Christ and then growing up in Christ to become more and more like Christ, that's the best thing you could ever give to anybody. If you really love people, what could be better than that? Come on now. Can you think of anything better than that? There's nothing at the end of time, nothing will matter more. But even here and now, our best life now, that which is good, true, and beautiful, is Christ being formed in those who are saved by Christ. I hope you believe that. So when you look at this text, uh, Jesus did command it, but it's kind of like Jesus doesn't, surely if, when we know we're saved, he shouldn't even have to command it. But he's kind and good, and so he, he does command it to those he discipled. And by inference, we're going to see he commands you and me to do the same. So we're going to go, and what are we going to do? There's going to be three things when you're making disciples that you're going to do. And all three are super important. The first is you're going to disciple lost people. Some people call it evangelism, but the word evangelism is not in the Bible. So you're going to disciple lost people to salvation, and to bring them to salvation, you're going to baptize them into Christ. By the way, put that text back up, please. You're going to baptize them into Christ uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptize them into salvation. But disciple-making doesn't stop with salvation, Disciple-making then goes on what? Teaching them to just know the command. Doesn't it say just teaching them to know the commands of Jesus? Is that what it says? No, it says obey. Teach them to obey part of the teachings of Jesus. No, what does it say? To obey everything I've commanded you. So it's called obedience-based disciple-making. Now, now let me ask you a question. Are there some teachings of the Bible that are difficult for you to follow? Do you think you, do you, think you might need some help? Let's, let's all raise our hands, and I'll start. Uh, if we need help obeying some of the commands in the Bible that Jesus teaches us. Yeah, we all need, we all need help. We all need somebody, uh, and as we're going to see, multiple people to help disciple us to obey all the commands of Jesus. Mark Twain was once asked, doesn't it bother you that there are things in the Bible you don't understand? And he said, not nearly as much as the things I do understand and I don't practice. So we're going to disciple people. We're going to bring them to Christ. We're going to teach them to obey all the teachings of Christ. And I said, there's three things. What's the third thing? The Greek text makes this a little bit clearer than the English. Jesus says, it's like he says this, hey, look, look. Please note, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In the late 1990s, I planted a church outside Nashville, Tennessee. I, my wife and I planted a church with a group of people, and it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. I'd led uh, two churches as the senior minister of a church in my hometown, Calgary, Canada, and then the Otter Creek in church in Nashville. But planning a tr and I'd, I had run my father's trucking company for five years, which, by the way, you know it's difficult when a truck driver calls you in the middle of the night, and he says, uh, from British Columbia, Canada, and he says, hey, we just had an accident, and I ran the truck into a mountain. What do I do? 
<laughs> yeah. And I said, I don't know what you do, but let's figure it out. But when I planted a church, it was the hardest thing we'd ever done. And I would get so anxious. And one day I found a big rock and I just wrote Matthew 28 and I wrote the whole thing on there, but I emphasized that part where Jesus said, I will be with you always. Jesus promises when we make disciples, when we're committed to making disciples, we're, we're baptizing people, we're helping people to join with us in obeying all the commands of Jesus. He promises us, I will be with you always to the end of the age. So I just want to declare to, to this church that Jesus is with you when you make disciples. Now, back to my friend, uh, Mac Jacobs, who discipled me. I, I want you to know, and I just want us to count the stakes again, because there's a day coming when the stakes will matter to you more than you can possibly imagine. But you see, when Mac discipled me, he didn't just change the trajectory of my life, but he did my mother and my father. Like, uh, he used to come for lunch on Sundays, and my mom would be talking, and my dad, who was not a believer, would go to the other room, but he would listen. And before long, Mac not only baptized me, he baptized my mother. And then when my mother and father's marriage temporarily collapsed, he baptized my father who said to me, when you're down as low as I have been, the only way is to look up to God. You know, I was in uh, Calgary on Monday and Tuesday of this week. I went up to see my parents. My mother's eight, about to be 87. She doesn't really have much memory left. And my dad is about to be 90, and he's in pain all day long. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that they came to faith in Christ and that they are waiting for Jesus to come back. You know, another person that ended up coming to Harding University with me is my little sister, Cindy. And I grew up in a family. I was in a high school of 2100. I was the student's council president, captain of the football team, blah, 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 blah. And I only knew three people in that whole high school that went to church. But I want you to know that God did a miracle through discipling relationships. And my little sister wasn't sure about going to Harding University. I keep talking about Harding University. Mike Williams is here, and I'm, 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 I'm pandering to him now. I, 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 I think very highly because of the changes in my life that Harding University brought to me, including my, my little baby sister came to chapel one day and leaned over to me and said, Bobby, I'm ready to be baptized. So she was baptized into Christ. She met her husband there. And a few years ago, my baby sister died of a rare brain disease. But, you know, because Mac Jacobs discipled me and I discipled her, I know I'm going to see her when Jesus returns. And I just want you to know that of all the things in life, that's going to matter the most to all of us. Now, I, I've been asked by uh, Jonathan uh, and Lynn Cook, your small groups minister, to talk about a few things. So I, I want to press into this, and I, wanna, I want you to know three things about disciple-making and this commission that Jesus gave. By the way, notice how Jesus says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Jesus said everything he taught to the disciples, they were to teach others. So if he taught them to make disciples, is he also teaching us? to make disciples, since he taught that to them and they're to teach and we're to teach everything he commanded them? And the answer to that is yes. It applies to you and me. 
I want to <clears throat> I want to say uh, I want to define for you what a disciple is. So I work with some organizations. I'm I'm a part-time preacher basically. I'm I'm, I'm the part-time lead pastor of Harpeth Christian Church. Jonathan keeps calling it Harpeth Hills, and there's no hills there. It's just a river. Harpeth Christian Church uh, in Franklin, Tennessee. And uh, uh, I'm part-time with that because during the week I lead discipleship.org and renew.org. And I hope all of you will check out renew.org for really good teachings on what Jesus says in Scripture and how it applies to life and disciple-making. But one of the things that we did is we got a group of national leaders together, and we defined what a disciple is. We searched Scripture, and we said, if you were to sum it up, well, Matthew 4.19 is probably a good place to develop a framework for a definition. So here it is. What is a disciple? Can we all read it together? A disciple is someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and committed to the mission of Jesus. You'll find that definition pulls together everything in the New Testament. Now, I want to tell you that I believe it's the core mission of the church. In fact, C.S. Lewis, I think, described it really well. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, that great British writer, talked about the role of government, and then he talked about the role of church. Notice what he says. The church, and by this he means the local church, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, that's salvation, to make them little Christs. That's growth, that's sometimes called sanctification, that's maturity. So the church exists for what? To bring people to Christ and help them to grow, become more and more like Christ. He says this, if they, that is a church, if they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself is simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. I hope you believe that. I hope you see that. Now, uh, I'm going to recommend a book. Lynn Cook, your small groups guy, asked me to recommend the book on disciple-making that, uh, as I understand it, several of your groups are gonna, going to be going through this book uh, this fall. And I just want to say this short book, <clears throat> it's a short book. Did I mention it's a short book? Do you know that 70% of all books are read by women and the other 30% are read by preachers? <laughs> the average man does not read a book after he graduates from college. <laughs> you got it, brother. So it's a short book. But this short book makes the case that disciple-making, what I'm talking about, is the core mission of the church. It's not the only mission. Let me, let me explain what I mean. If the mission of the church is to help people come to Christ and then become mature in Christ and Christ-like, then guess what happens when that's going on? Some people say, well, the main purpose of the church is worship. Well, Christ-like people worship God. It was Jesus who taught us the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Some people say, well, it's, it's actually we've got to take care of the poor and do social justice. A Christ-like person does care about the poor and social justice. A Christ-like person doesn't want there to be racism. A Christ-like person cares for holiness and love. And in fact, a Christ-like person more than anything else is epitomized by love. In 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul there says there's three things that remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is love. 
So the core mission of the church is disciple-making, and I commend that to you, brothers and sisters. Here's the challenge that you have in front of you. If we can go to the next slide. Here's the challenge that you have in front of you, because I've been working on this for 15 years with multiple networks and multiple churches, and it all is going to boil down to this one question. Can you create a culture of disciple-making? Can you create a culture where everybody sees themselves at the church under very simple, a simple lens? We all see ourselves as disciples, and what our church does and what we help with is make disciples. Now, culture is more important than strategy. Peter Drucker, the famous uh, management guru, said, culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Your family has a culture. What is culture? Culture is how we do things around here. Each of you has a, a family system you grew up in or you're part of now, unless you're a single person. But you know when, when I say a family culture, what a family culture is, it's how you do things. Churches have cultures. Uh, and there's a dominant culture that's been a part of uh, most churches uh, in the South that I want to address in a second. But uh, a culture is how we do things around here. It's how you think of yourselves. And that's more important than all the strategy. You say, why is that important, Bobby? Here's why that's important. It's important because it's really easy when Jonathan talks about disciple-making to say, yeah, we believe that, and not change, and not do things differently. We're talking about a very different operating system for the church. And you say, well, an op operating system, yeah. Let me contrast a disciple-making church in two key ways with the average church that people aspire to. Are you ready? I'm going, to step, I'm going to step on some toes. All right? I call it the three Ps of the contemporary culture church. Okay? What's a good church? Well, it can be summed up in the three Ps. Does it have a great preacher? Does it have great praise and worship? Does it have great programs? Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, do you want boring preaching? Do you want poor praise and worship and no programs? And the answer to those is no, I don't. But I want to suggest that in Scripture, the holy trinity of the preacher, the praise and worship, and the programs was not the core essence of a local church. What's happened today is that we have because of various reasons in our culture, we put too much pressure on the preacher to do everything, the preacher to persuade everyone. And I'm just telling you right now, even if he's as fantastic of a preacher as Jonathan Stormont, it's not enough. There is no way that one hour on Sunday morning is going to out-disciple all the discipling of our minds Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday where you got HR departments, where you got Taylor Swift songs in your head. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or where you're watching TV shows where everybody's fine with LGBTQ, whatever, where everybody's getting pressure every day in thousands of ways to conform to the patterns of the world. An hour on Sunday is not enough. And the praise and worship, as good as it is, and the programs, listen to me, programs don't change people. People who love other people, who disciple other people, change people. And God's Spirit is at work in it. So, okay, 
What's the contrast? Let me show you the contrast. Next slide, please. Actually, before I go to the next slide, I forgot. Wait, no. In my notes, there's another slide before that. There we go. In my church, I have the clicker. <laughs> I'm, I'm adjusting. So uh, here's, here's the contrast, and I'm going to show you this from Scripture, all right? I'm not saying that good preaching isn't important. I think it is. It's not sufficient. I'm not saying praise and worship isn't important. It's just not sufficient. I'm not saying programs aren't important. They're just not. Here's what's sufficient. is a church where the culture of the church is that everybody on a daily basis is engaged in the four key things on the right. The Word of God, the people of God, with the people of God, with the power of the Spirit of God, and the mission of God. Now you're saying, okay, where did you get those from? I, one, one way I got them is a lot of experience, but I'll tell you where I got them more from is from the book of Acts, and we're going to look at it in just a second. You're going to see that all four of these habits are the habits that the first church had on the day of Pentecost. All these people are baptized, the church starts, and what does it say they do? And I'll mention it to you now, I'm going to come back to it. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the Word of God, to the fellowship, that's the people of God in relationship. It's the Word of God, the people of God, uh, they devoted themselves to... Uh, uh, I'm getting to the Spirit of God here. I've got to... Um, breaking of bread and to prayers, which is this intimacy with God. And then in the midst of all that, the Lord is adding to their number daily those who are being saved. Now, let me be transparent with you about a problem. Why all this stuff that I'm saying is going to sound great, but the odds are against you doing it unless you make the two key moves I'm about to talk to you about. So if we can go to the next slide. Okay, um, this is a graphic that we created, I think it was in 2019, on creating a disciple-making culture. It came from a lot of learnings uh, with uh, a lot of things that are going on, including uh, international disciple-making movements. So most of you probably don't know about international disciple-making movements. Let me tell you the highlight. They're new. They've been around for 30 years. Because of disciple-making movements, now somewhere between 3 and 4% of China at 1.5 billion, 3 to 4% of the Chinese people are in disciple-making movements. I have a friend who went to Hunan Island in China in the early 1990s. There were 100 believers there, 7 million people on that island, 100 believers. When he left 10 years later, half a million of them were followers of Jesus. In, in India right now, we think there's 4 to 5% of the Indian population that many of us thought would never be reached that are followers of Jesus because of disciple-making movements. In the last 30 years, it is now the case that over 1% of the world's population are in disciple-making movements, which is so exciting, including in Africa and in West Africa. And I want to explain this graph to you because I want you to know something that some of us learned from a guy named Shadonke Johnson. So Shadonke Johnson leads a disciple-making movement in West Africa. 16, approximately 16 years ago, they had planted four churches. They decided to embrace disciple-making as a focus and some very specific strategies that help the average person be more closely engaged with the Word of God, the people of God, the Spirit of God, and the mission of God. 
So they embraced these disciple-making strategies, and they went from three churches to today, if we can get accurate numbers, over 250,000 people in Sierra Leone are following Jesus. They want, they want him to become the president of the country because he, his movement has just taken over. Well, he sat down with myself and Dave Clayton, who's the uh, senior minister of Ethos in Nashville. We sat down with Shadonke and we talked about how can we help churches in North America to become disciple-making churches? And he said, the biggest problem with North American churches is this. If you'll look at this diagram, I want to tell you two things I already know that you're good at at this church. So if you notice, at the core is values and core beliefs. Uh, what we truly believe, what truly matters to us. What's your mission statement? Follow Jesus, build bridges, make disciples. So I'm talking to people who explicitly, at least, are saying, we believe in disciple-making. In fact, if I asked you, you would all say, we believe in the Word of God, we believe in the people of God, we believe in the Spirit of God, we believe in the mission of God. You would say all that, okay? Now, skip the middle part, the behaviors part, and go to the narrative. What's the narrative? The narrative is how you describe things. It's how you, you say who you are. It already happened. At the beginning, you have a video where the elder comes up and he talks about who you are and all that. Jonathan is a fantastic preacher. I'm sure he's talking about, if you can keep him focused on this topic, but he talks about disciple-making a lot. The biggest problem is going to be the behaviors. So let me describe what I mean. It is not enough to believe something. It's not enough to talk about something. You have to have disciplined application of that thing. And uh, so Shadonke uh, told Dave Clayton and I, it won't happen until the people in your churches are willing to commit to the practices of being disciples who make disciples. And North Americans don't like to be told what to do, so you've got a difficult job with your churches. You're really going to have to persuade people to be committed, that they need discipline that creates habits, habits that form lifestyles and lifestyles that form behaviors. So in Shadonke Johnson and in these other places, by the way, as a part of disciple-making movements, catch this, in the last 14 years, more Muslims have come to faith in Christ than in the previous 14 centuries. I've seen picture, I saw the picture like a month ago, 72 Muslim imams lined up in front of a river about to be baptized. So I'm asking you to put your beliefs and your narrative into practice and commit to the habits of a disciple-making culture. And the, these four habits, I, I want to talk to you about just a little bit more. By the way, uh, if we can go to the next slide. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you to Acts 2.42. What, what time am I supposed to be done? here's the thing most churches know. You put a clock at the back so that, and it goes red when the preacher's over, but you didn't do that, so it's all your fault if I go long. <laughs> um, so I've been working on this because uh, we're coaching. 
we have hundreds of churches in the networks that we're working with. And I realized that for North Americans to really get to, to movement uh, status with disciple making, this, this concept of commitment to do it even if we don't fully understand it and even if we don't like it, and in even some cases, we may not fully agree to it. So it's that discipline. It's like going to the gym when you don't want to go to the gym. In fact, let me give you an, an uh, illustration. One of the things I believe today, especially for restoration movement churches like Pleasant Valley and Harpeth Christian Church, who are the heirs of Alexander Campbell, we have not depended enough on the Holy Spirit and the presence of God in history. So one of the things in our church that we're doing is we're very committed to fasting and prayer and asking for God by the power of His Spirit to, to move amongst us. Five years ago, we asked our elders to commit to set the example for the church. So here's what that means. Our church is about, it'll be 26 years old this uh, December. And we've talked all those years, for 21 years, we talked about the elders need to pray more, the elders need to pray more, the elders need to pray more, and the elders wouldn't pray more. So finally, a couple of us just said, look, let's just do it. Thursday mornings at 6 a.m., let's start praying. And we asked all the elders to commit to it. And some of the elders weren't sure they wanted to commit to it. Some of the elders, like me, I'm an elder in the church, like I'm a night, I'm a night owl. So getting up Thursday mornings at 5.30 is not something that I, in my flesh, want to do. But we started doing it. Five years ago, we started doing it. Me and several of the elders, and I can tell we're all like struggling, but we just started doing it. Every Thursday morning, 5.30, we get up, we start at 6. 5.30, we get up, we start at 6. Well, you know what? It's been five years later. We don't know how to be elders now without doing it. It's who we are, and it's what we do, and God has worked amazing through it. But do you notice how it started? It started with a commitment to do the right thing and… and, and uh, align our lifestyle with that, and it's become a habit. And now it is, and here's the key expression, it's what we do around here. So I wanna, uh, I, I'm wanting to help more and more people to do this, and I was going to speak to our church a couple of weeks ago about getting to that next level, and I realized for us, this is something, the disciplined application of the habits is so important. Habits beat strategies, Right? Culture triumphs over all this stuff. So I woke up in the night. I was trying to figure it out. And I woke up in the night and Acts 2.42 came to my mind. And in, at night it was uh, the, that expression, they devoted themselves. And in my mind, that was the key. Like, I, and I think it was God leading me. So I got up the next morning and I had to check the Greek out on this word devoted. And sure enough, I checked it out. Now let me read it to you. These are the four habits, as I mentioned earlier, there's four habits in all this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the Bible, uh, to the fellowship, that's relationships, to the breaking of bread and prayer, that's the power of the Holy Spirit. By the way, there's an intimacy with the breaking of bread. This reference is probably to uh, communion. Weekly communion is a very important habit to focus us on Jesus. I had a friend who planted a church in California, and they had a lot of unchurched people start coming, and they had communion every Sunday. And this woman starts coming to the church, and she wants to know, why do you take communion every week? She came up to Rick Stedman, who had been the planter. And he said to her, well, he was trying to think, how do I tell her in a short way? He said, you know, I'm a sinful man, 
And I need to be reminded on a weekly basis that the grace of Jesus saves me from all my sin. And she said, oh, that's, that's, that's good. Well, the next week he was at church in the foyer. There's a lot of people there, and he saw that woman that had asked him. And uh, he gets closer, and he hears she's explaining to another newcomer why they take communion every week. And she said, we take communion every week. She said, you know, our pastor is a sinful man. <laughs> <laughs> And he needs to be rem- <laughs> there, <laughs> There's an intimacy with the Holy Spirit in this. Now, I want you to notice this word. Uh, if we can put the word up that's devoted. It's the word pros uh, carterao. And here's what the word means. It actually means exactly what Shiranke had told us. To persist in adherence to a thing. To be intently engaged in. To attend constantly to. So, Pleasant Valley, here's the deal. When Scripture tells us the earliest Christians who were disciples, who made disciples, it says at a very core level, they were very committed to these practices. They were devoted to them. And I want you to know that everything in our culture today is asking for your time, asking for your attention, and and it's distracting you. And you will not be a church of disciples who make disciples unless you are committed to the Word of God, the people of God, the Spirit of God, and the mission of God. And that cannot be said more strongly. I have been involved in national studies. If you can go to the next slide, please. I've been involved in national uh, conglomeration with a network called the Exponential. You can go to the next slide. See, I'm going fast here now for you. Uh, uh, And we have looked at, it was a massive study within 3% of accuracy of churches. Less than 5% of churches in North America are disciple-making churches. But I can tell you that those 4.9% of churches, they all have a people who are committed to the practices of of being disciples. Lynn Cook uh, asked me, again, he's your small groups guy, um, to just emphasize how important this is for all of you to hear and to be about. So I want to talk to you about a, a second key strategy that goes along with this culture where you're committed to these habits, and that is raising up disciple-makers. So if there's a culture of devotion, the next is raising up disciple-makers. If we can go to the next slide, please. Okay. A lot of times what will happen is uh, churches will say, and people will say, it's not my job to disciple people. It's the preacher's job to disciple people. And I just want you to know, Scripture never says that. Scripture implies in Matthew 28 the opposite of that. But even more so, Scripture actually tells us how God wants disciple-making to be in the church. So Paul wrote to Timothy, who was in Ephesus, and he gave the master plan. He said to Timothy, that which you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses. So Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, hey, you've been about me. You know the doctrines I teach. You know how I do it. Uh, So he says, the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, so it's Paul to Timothy, he says, entrust to reliable people, and those reliable people will be qualified to teach others. Notice the four generations. Paul to Timothy, 
Timothy to reliable people, and reliable people teach others. It's four generations. Here's the key thing. Remember this. Jonathan can come back to it. When you get to disciples who make disciples to the fourth generation, then you know that the culture of disciple-making is taking over in your church. It's what Paul told Timothy. Now, notice what he said. Entrust these to reliable people. Well, who are the reliable people? It's the Greek word pistos, faithful, trustworthy, and reliable. So, When we are discipling people, there will be a significant number of people who become disciple makers. Now, if I can have everybody's attention, I've been talking about the culture of everybody at Pleasant Valley. I want to talk about the culture of your leadership. I'm talking about paid staff and elders. In a disciple-making church, the role of paid staff and elders is not so much to make disciples as it is to make disciple-makers. The more Jonathan is raising up five people who go out and disciple others, the more the elders, and the elders are currently doing this, the more the elders are discipling people who disciple people, then the culture starts to spread and, and it becomes part of who you are and what you do. So let me describe what a disciple maker is. A disciple maker is a disciple of Jesus who enters in relationships with people to intentionally help them follow Jesus, be changed by Jesus, and it should say, but the typo came in, and uh, committed to the mission of Jesus. Let me be explicit. What does that result in? You ready for this? Here's some examples. People who are addicted say, I was discipled in Celebrate Recovery, and now Jesus has set me free. People who were alone say, I made genuine friends in my 242 group, and I'm not alone anymore. People who were hopeless say, I was about to give up, and those discipling me showed me hope. People who are bitter say, I was bitter, and then I was discipled, and now I know what it means to forgive. People who are anxious say, I was constantly worried, and I was discipled on Jesus' promises, and now Jesus gives me peace. People who are self-righteous say, I was caught up in pride, and the transparency of my D group showed me how, about, how honest, vulnerable humility is the key way of God's grace. People who were discouraged say, I was down and out, but my disciples showed me how Jesus picks me up. People who are desperate say, I was at the end of my rope and my friends showed me how to have hope in Jesus. People who are confused in their identity, and by the way, if you're under 26 years of age today, the norm is to be confused about your identity. I was confused about my identity, but my disciples showed me my new identity in Christ. It's who we are, and it's what we do. It's when your office administrator, you stumble across coming into the office at night, and they're in the office discipling a group of ladies. It's when our bookkeeper, we're having a meeting, and one of the elders said to me, we've got to be done by 3 o'clock, Bobby. Our bookkeeper has a, a D group that she's leading at 3 o'clock. It's when the people who lead praise and worship, they do a good job on praise and worship, but more importantly, they're discipling everybody in the praise and worship teams. And lastly, let me end with this. I'm speaking to the leaders here. In fact, if we can go to the next slide. I want to give you an expression. 
and it ties in with <clears throat> making disciple makers. When you make disciple makers, every disciple maker needs a simple, effective, and reproducible model. So right now in the D groups that the elders are going through, they're using this material. Uh, the next time you see something like this, it'll be revised. Carl and Alicia Williamson from Harding are co-authoring uh, an upgrade on this with me. Now, here's what I mean by that. <clears throat> if you're discipling me, it really helps me if you invite me into a discipling relationship, and by being in this discipling relationship, I experience this simple, effective, and reproducible model so that then I can go and do it with others. And then when I do it with others, they can do it with others. And then when they do it with others, they can do it with others. Does that make sense, everybody? It's what happens to me, I share with others. What I share with others, they share with others. So this is a model that your church has embraced. I won't take time to explain it any further. <clears throat> That's very important on that. Other than I'll, I'll mention this thing. <clears throat> in our culture today, there is a meltdown in belief systems, okay? Uh, evangelical Christianity, Bible-believing Christianity all across the land is having the foundations eroded. Whether you're a Baptist, Assembly of God, uh, Anglican, Church of Christ, Christian Church, the foundations are being eroded. We're losing our confidence. The average person actually doesn't know the Bible like they did 10, 20, especially 30 years ago. So what becomes really important is discipling people in the Word of God and in the core essential teachings. Now, one of the things that a church does when it's a disciple-making church is it's very clear on the elementary teachings of the faith. And here's how it works. It isn't that Jonathan preaches it on Sunday. It's that you have in your discipling relationships this core elementary teachings that you take people through, and then they take people through, and then they take people through, so that pretty soon everybody in the church knows it, and they're teaching it to others. It's in our church. I'm so grateful to God, and I give him credit for this. We have, I have an elder uh, in our church who works in a doctor's office. He's a physician's assistant. People were so impressed by his life change, they asked him to study the Bible with them. So at 6 a.m. every Wednesday, he's, he's taking them through this material. He ends up baptizing a couple of them. But now when they become a part of the church, they take that same material and they teach other people that material. Because the job in a disciple-making church of leaders is not just to make disciples, it is to make disciple-makers. So important. Well, so many things to say, so little time. I want to go back to that vision I started with that's described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and he's writing them about doctrine, he's writing them about the second coming of Jesus, he's writing them about their lifestyle, and then at the end of chapter 2, he just slows down, and he points to the second coming of Jesus. By the way, in Scripture, that is the horizon by which we live our lives. There's a day coming, and the trumpet call of God will sound. History as we know it will come to an end. Jesus will return, and when he returns, the only thing that matters, the only people who are counted blessed 
the only people who are ultimate winners in life are those who are in Christ. They were disciples of Christ. But Paul adds to it. He wants us to see a broader perspective. So he's uh, autobiographical. He says, what is our hope and our joy? We church leaders, what is our hope, our joy, and the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes? So he uses the crown here for like uh, an athletic contest. It's like the major trophy, the Super Bowl. What's the Super Bowl for us when Jesus returns? And then he turns and he says, is it not you? Indeed, you are our hope and our glory and our joy. You're saying, why are you telling us this, Bobby? Here's why I'm telling you this. I can't think of anything more important than when Jesus comes back and he, he looks at you and he looks at me and the first thing we want to hear him say is, well done, good and faithful servant. Agreed? How many people want to hear Jesus say that to you? Well done, good and faithful servant. Come on now. Now, what's going to be the second most important thing that happens at that moment for you? Parents, it's when you look down and you say, my kids are here, and Jesus is saying the same thing to my kids. And then your friends, he's saying the same thing to your friends. Do you think anything will matter? Parents, by the way, do you think it will matter if your child is a fantastic athlete, if they played for the Arkansas Razorbacks or the, the Harding Bisons? Or did you, Will any of those things matter? No, the only thing that will matter then is, did you raise them where they were disciples of Jesus? Now think about it. Here's, here's what it's going to be like for me. When Jesus comes back and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to see my parents are there. And my children are there. And thank God my children follow Jesus. And my grandchildren will be there. Maybe I'll see my, my great-grandchildren. I'm going, to see my, I'm going to see a man named uh, Eli Sung. He was a Harding uh, student when I was there. And I discipled him. And I baptized him. I have no idea what happened, but I'm, I'm hoping to see Eli Sung there and all the people that he's discipled into Christ. And uh, I'm going to see my friend Jason Hauser, who uh, I helped disciple him to save his marriage. And then he was able to disciple his kids, and he started a ministry of discipling kids all across the nation. I'm going to look around and I'm going to see that. Friends, here's the deal it's not just about we get to heaven that we get to be with Jesus. It's about that we lived our lives as disciples who made disciples so as many as possible. We're all standing before Jesus and that will be the most glorious day you can ever hope or imagine. In the words of the Apostle Paul, it will be the glory and joy of our lives. God bless you and God bless this church to be a church of disciples who make disciples.